are this morning in Romans chapter 11. So you take out your Bibles, Romans 11. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you, Romans 11. And we are going to, by God's grace, try to cover an entire chapter today. <laughs> Romans chapter 11. We've, we've talked about as we've gone through these last few weeks, as we've looked at chapters 9, 10, and 11, that that this is a unique section in the book of Romans. For eight chapters, the first eight chapters, Paul confronts every, every living human being with the fact that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And on our own, we are hopeless in that situation, that we will face the wrath of God because of that, because the wrath of God is coming against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, whom we have purposely put aside the truth of God, but God in his grace, in his love towards us, sent his only son to die for us. And we see that even the, the love that God has for us, as we saw, has been demonstrated for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that anyone, the truth of the gospel is that anyone who would simply humble themselves and receive in faith the free gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And we talked about that even in chapter 8, that that certainty that is ours because of that, because of God's election, because of God's power, because of God's sovereignty, that, that as a Christian, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's where we, that he leaves off in chapter 8, but then again in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he asks the question, well, what about Israel then? What about Israel's cho God's chosen people that he made promises and covenants to in the past? And we've been looking at that, and that's a very important question for us to know the answer to, even as Gentiles, non-Jewish people, because if God's not faithful in his covenant to the Jewish people that he made to them long ago, what makes us think he's going to be faithful to the new covenant that he's made with us? And so we've looked at that over the last several weeks in nine, chapters 9 and 10, and we saw last time as chapter 10 comes to a close, he's speaking again about, about how the gospel gets out and how it is heard and how it is received. But then he comes to this and he asks, again, speaking again of Israel in verse 19, but I say, surely Israel didn't know, did they? I mean, they couldn't have heard the message, right? Because if they did, obviously they would have responded. And he goes back to say, no, that's not true. Moses brought the truth even through Isaiah. And then in verse 21 of chapter 10, it says, but as for Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, there's no chapter break. That's where we left off and we pick up in chapter 11 because that leaves then again hanging the question that Paul keeps coming back to and answering emphatically. Chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? His people, Israel, his chosen people. And notice how he answers emphatically, may it never be. God's chosen people, beginning with Abraham, and as we talked in chapter 9, not all Israel, not all descendants of Abraham, and we worked our way through all of that. But he has not rejected Israel, has he? Now, we know, the New Testament tells us, that all, Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will no way push away anybody who comes to me. But this is speaking of somebody who is already a child, and being thrust away. And he says, no way could that happen. May it never be. And then in the next few verses, he outlines three 
uh, illustrations, if you would, points that he makes to prove that fact. First of all, as he continues in verse 1, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. And then speaking then, this is Elijah. He's quoting Elijah now. Lord, they have killed your prophets and have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what, did the, what was the divine response to him? What did God respond to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Again, Paul gives three points, if you would, to prove that God is not done with Israel. And the first one he makes is, he says, well, look at me. Paul says, look at me, I'm a Jew. If God had completely cast away his people, completely done away with the Jews, I wouldn't be saved. I wouldn't be here. And we know that Paul's conversion is is one of complete grace. Paul was the the one that, that was setting out to destroy the Christian religion in its very infancy. He, he was passionate and zealous to go out and wipe out the Christian faith at, at its very beginning. And God met him. Jesus, his, the risen Savior, met him on the road to Damascus. And you know the story where he comes to that miraculous understanding that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he gives his life to him. Again, all by grace. It wasn't like Paul set out on a journey to find Jesus. Jesus met him and changed him forever by grace. And then he goes on to give the second example. Not only he, by grace, saved through faith. Notice also he says it's, it's, he, God hasn't rejected those whom he foreknew. And then he speaks again of Elijah. The story is told in, in back, back in the Old Testament. Elijah, the prophet, he, he's the one, after he defeats the prophets of Baal up, up, on, up on Mount Carmel, it tells us after that amazing victory, Jezebel, the queen, says, I'm going to kill him. And he goes running off into the wilderness, and he's afraid for his own life. And he, then he has this conversation with God where it's outlined for us here. He's like, God, I'm, a, I'm, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me now too. And God, and I'm paraphrasing, says, just relax. You're not the only one left. By my own grace and by my power, by my gracious choice, God said, there, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bound the knee to Baal. And we see the second point that he's making, that throughout history, throughout the history of the Jewish people, no matter how far they as a people got away from God, he always protected a remnant ones that truly followed him. And again, that's by grace. Notice, by my gracious choice, by grace, God has done this. And I see, I think both of those basically point to the third major point, and I think this is the one that encapsulates it all that he's making. He points to the character of God. God always fulfills his promises. And he can do that because he is an almighty, all-powerful God. But he does that because that's his very nature. He can't lie. It is impossible for God to lie. God has kept by his gracious choice a remnant in the children of Israel. To this day, 
And when we see and we look at this again, gracious choice, the grace here, Paul, the grace extended to Paul, we see that it always has been, it is, and it always will be all about grace. And it's important to understand there were covenants made with the children of Israel that were conditional. They had their part to hold up and they didn't. But there were many promises made to the children of Israel that were unconditional that were based solely on God and his word. And in Psalm chapter 89, and you don't need to turn there. If you're a note taker, you can jot it down. It's a, great, it's a great psalm to have highlighted and to go back to, even again, to bring us peace and comfort in our times of difficulty. Psalm 89, beginning in verse 30, God speaking through the psalmist, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquities with stripes. But, verse 33, I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. God is faithful because that is who he is. It's not a choice that he makes. God is faithful to his word. Do you ever feel alone? Do you ever feel like, I'm the only one left? You're in good company. Elijah felt that way. I think we all can feel that way from time to time. And we need to hear those, those words again that the Lord promised. And because of, again, his covenant faithfulness to us, he says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. You will never be alone no matter what it is that you're going through. And the enemy would like to convince you that you're all alone. But just like the Lord spoke tenderly to Elijah, you're not alone. I love the body of Christ. I love the fact that he has brought us together the way that he has, and he knits us together this way. Know that you're not alone. Know that God has uniquely positioned you in this place, in this time, not only to be a blessing, but to be blessed by others. God is working in you, and he's working in others because he's faithful, because he is loving. And he continues, as we, in, as we look in, in Romans 11 here, he continues on with this argument because, again, it could, it could, he could, he's still trying to make this point that, again, God is not done with Israel as a whole. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? Note again, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. 
Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Beginning in verse 7, we see again Paul outlining again, perhaps even recounting as he's going through what we looked at back in the beginning of chapter 10. That that the Jewish people are zealous but without knowledge. And because of that, they've come up with this whole idea themselves as to how how they are right in God's eyes. Following the law, doing all of these rituals, following all of these traditions. And as we talked back then, most of those man-made. And it says here that, that those who do come to the truth obtain what it is that they're doing by faith. Those that become followers of Jesus obtain what it is that they were searching after. All the rest are hardened. And as we discussed, and it's important to bring this point back, God is not capricious or unjust. It's not like he picked out these to save and those to harden. Those that are hardened, those that are blinded, those that have this spirit of stupor that are listed here are those who chose by their own choosing unbelief. In their own hearts, they began to harden their hearts towards the grace of God that was given to them. And because of that, and it speaks of this a couple of times, the spirit of stupor, and then in verse 9 when it talks of the table becoming a snare, They're sitting around the table. They're enjoying the banquet. They're getting all fat on things. And they're like, hey, we're good. Everything's great. (laughs) We're the chosen people for crying out loud. We're fine. And that became a snare to them because they missed the truth. They missed grace as it has been extended to them. The remnant received it, but the remnant's the minority. The majority missed it and were hardened. They rejected it. Now again, this is so important that we we keep coming back around to this because we're going to hit this a few more times today because this idea of God choosing, God electing is very real in the word of God. But also man has a free will, a choice that we have to make. And though the remnant was chosen by God's grace's choice, we see. We see it played out in the story of Jesus when he interacts even with his disciples, right? He's going along, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, And he comes along, Peter, James, and John, and they're fishing, they're cleaning their nets, they're doing all that kind of stuff. And he says, what to them? Come, follow me. Jesus is the initiator. Jesus is the one who goes to them. Jesus will later say, you didn't choose me, I chose you. But they had a choice to make. They could have said no. But it says that they chose to immediately drop their nets and follow him. Matthew, Jesus Jesus walking through Capernaum. Matthew, the tax collector, he's sitting there collecting taxes. Got a pretty good business going on, pretty good thing going on. Jesus said, follow me. He had a choice to make, and he chose to follow Jesus. Those who don't, it tells us those who harden their hearts, God God hardens that. He continues that. But notice verse 11, so important. I say then, they didn't stumble as to fall, did they? 
the hardening wasn't a permanent hardening. It says, may it never be. They weren't cast away completely. They made this choice, but God has a purpose in it all. And that's what these verses outline for us. God's divine purpose. And it's twofold. First of all, to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Any Gentiles other than me happy about that? <laughs> salvation came to the Gentiles. But the purpose is twofold. Notice, it's also to bring salvation to the Jews by making them jealous. God isn't doing this to drive the Jewish people further away. His heart is to draw them back to himself. Israel's rejection of Jesus didn't catch God by surprise. It wasn't like, uh-oh, we got to come up with plan B. However, that does not remove their responsibility and accountability for their rebellious choice. God has an eternal plan to bring the gospel, the good news, to the world. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God first is talking to Abraham about it, and he says, through you, through your seed, Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. But I think it's important that we don't just move away from this because it's very clear in here that, that the Jews' failure, not their faithfulness, brought the gospel to us as Gentiles. But what about us as Christians? What about us? Do you see our role in this? It says the gospel goes back to them by making them jealous. There should be something about our lives as Christians that when we are around our, our Jewish brothers and sisters who don't know the Lord, there should be something in our lives that makes them jealous. And, and Jesus told us what that was, right? He said, they'll know you belong to me by your love. The love that you have for one another. The love that you have for them. But let me tell you guys, throughout history, and especially specifically from the Christian church, there's been anything but love extended to the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, Christians throughout history have treated the Jews with hatred and prejudice and persecution, which makes absolutely no sense. There is absolutely zero room in the Christian faith for any type of anti-Semitism, anything anti-Jewish. Let's just start for the obvious reason. Our king is a Jew. <laughs> Jesus himself is a Jew. The king that we worship is a Jewish man. Any type of anti-Semitic action, thoughts, words are satanic in origin. Straight up. From the very beginning, the enemy knew, Satan knew that through the seed of Abraham, the Messiah would eventually come. That, he set out from the beginning to wipe them out. We're studying this on Wednesday nights. We're going through the book of Esther right now. We were introduced this last Wednesday to a man named Haman. Yeah, there's a couple of you that were here. 
He set out his whole goal, his whole plan, his mission that he had was to wipe the Jewish people out. Not just kill a few here or there, but to completely annihilate that. Satanic. Again, the goal is to wipe out so that the, the Messiah can't come. There has never been a more hated people in all of the world than the Jewish people. They have been targeted for extinction on more than one, more than one occasion. But again, by God's grace, his sovereign choice, his choosing and protecting his people, they've outlasted all their enemies. How many of you have an Amalekite for a neighbor? Moabite, Canaanite? Nope. Matter of fact, Israel prospers as a people today because of God's grace extended to them. We should have nothing but, but love and compassion and a burden like Paul had for their salvation. Paul also addresses something else as we continue, and he gives us an illustration in the following verses that there is absolutely no room for pride as Christians in this whole thing. Look at the illustration that he gives. First of all, verse 16, to kind of set it up, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. If the root is holy, the branches are also. Israel often referred to as an olive tree, an olive grove. The first root there, speaking again, obviously, of, of Abraham and the descendants coming out from that. So he goes on now in this illustration, in, beginning in verse 17, he says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. There's a teaching out, it's called replacement theology. I've touched on this a couple of times. It's, it's a teaching that says that the Christian church today has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. Obviously, if you believe that, you've never read Romans chapter 11, specifically the verses we just read. <laughs> Some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them. We didn't replace them. You being arrogant toward the branches, remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. Anyway, verse 19, continuing, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off, notice, for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, note this, if they do not continue in their unbelief, but turn by faith, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Again, broken off because of unbelief, grafted in because of faith. Guys, there is no room for pride, arrogance, conceit, only fear, reverence, humility. 
he touches on it here, and it's a very, very plain truth. Some of Israel was cut off. Apostate Israel was cut off. Why? Because of unbelief. What about the apostate church? I mean, this, this is so real and relevant to us and to, to us today. Because there's many that just feel, okay, well, I'm a part of a Christian church. I'm a part of this. I'm a part of that. I'm fine. The same dangers are, are outlined for us here. We should never be arrogant or conceited. Remember back in Romans chapter 9, he said, not all Israel, just because you say you're a part of Israel, doesn't make you part of Israel. And the same is true for the quote-unquote church. We live in a day and in a time where there is much of the quote-unquote church that is not truly a part of the body of Christ. We looked at this when we were studying the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we looked at the fact Jesus speaks to seven churches in those chapters. And the, at, at the time, there were churches that, that when John was writing, that specifically those were being mentioned to. But as we talked about that then, they also speak directly to the church today. And of those seven churches, only two out of the seven were, were functioning, were following Jesus as they should. The other five got serious rebuke from Jesus, even to the point where they said, unless you turn and repent, you have nothing to do with me. As a matter of fact, I'll just read one of them. It's, it's in Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus. After speaking to them about the things that they were doing right, he says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. All of, the, all of it is outward stuff. The problem is your heart. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, again, with the right heart, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The body of Christ, the true body of Christ. So much of what is labeled the church today is not the true church. And we have to be so, we have to be so careful of that. He's not talking here about the fact that you could lose your salvation as a Christian. We talked about that when we were back in chapter 8. He's talking about making sure that you are truly saved. And then as a church as a whole to make sure we are truly following the Lord. Remember. Jesus spoke of this in, in Matthew chapter 7. He said, that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do all sorts of great works in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. It wasn't about what you did. It was about your heart. It was about, am I Lord, truly Lord of your life? He talks about separating the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares about abiding and continuing to abide in him. True saving faith, genuine conversion is evidenced by perseverance. Continuing on. John says this in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were not of us. Important. Very relevant for us in our day. Now, as we 
continue moving on from there, verse 25 starts with the word for. And as we talk about that, there's no insignificant words. That's tying it again directly, basically saying because of what he said previously. And verse 24, then we move back up to there. Look what that starts with, for. So let's move back up to verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, that would mean that they turn in faith that they receive the grace that is extended to them, believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If they do that, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And then talking about, again, grafting them back in, if it's such a crazy thing that we, being wild olive branches, which, by the way, a wild olive branch, it has hard, almost they're almost like nuts on them, nothing like an olive you'd want to eat. And grafting that into a productive, beautiful olive tree that provides olives for, for oil. and for, That's what it's saying. If, if, if God could do that, take you, you crusty old branch, and graft you in, how much more could he take one that, that is his own, that, that came from the tree originally, and bring that in? In verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. And he quotes Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come from Zion and will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be confused anymore about this mystery. And notice what he says, all Israel will be saved. There is a partial hardening. It was a never a complete hardening. It's a partial hardening. There's always been a remnant, remember, but notice he puts a time frame on it until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God puts a time stamp on this. There is a divinely de- determined point in time when God will fulfill his promises to the Jewish people. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? Well, again, we've talked about now. The gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, to to you and I. And the fullness of the Gentiles, there's going to be a moment when that last one gets saved. That that has been elected, that has been determined, that that it's already, God knows the number, God knows when that's happening, God knows who it is, and when that happens, the next thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. We're out of (laughs) here. The trumpet's going to blow, we're going to be caught up to meet our, our Lord and our Savior in the sky. The church will be taken up. Who's the last one? I don't know. You're here today and you're not saved, you might be it. You might be holding the whole thing up. Before we leave today, let's, let's fix that if you're the one. But it says then, and we need to look at this because this is prophecy. The Bible and what separates the Bible from every other religious work is, is the prophetic nature of it. Speaking what has not happened, saying this is going to happen. And by the way, the Bible is 100% accurate to this point, has never prophesied anything. And that, What we celebrate right now is Christmas. 
Jesus coming, all of the prophecies, and there were many, many, and there's debates over that, some, some vague, some extremely specific. He fulfilled them all, every one of them in his first coming. The Bible is extremely prophetic, and the Bible is not silent about this, what we're talking about here, when all of Israel will be saved. Speaking of a time that takes place after the rapture of the church, which sets off the next period of time that's going to come, that will culminate in what we refer to as the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period that was prophesied all the way back into Daniel chapter 9. And you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to reference something real quickly here, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. Daniel, speaking in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, says this, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. 70 weeks, that word translated weeks is heptad. It means period of seven. We understand that to mean a period of seven years. So 70 periods of seven years. And I don't have time to go into great detail with that. We've covered that a couple of times on Palm Sunday. If you want to go back and watch a message from that time, um, we have them all archived online. It's a fan fascinating study that the first 69 weeks predict to the day when Jesus rode in to, on, uh, on Palm Sunday. But we're going to look at the, the 70th week for a moment here. But I want something that's extremely important. We'll see how close everybody's been paying attention. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Decreed for your people. Who is, speaking of God, who are your people? The Jews. And your holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. Who declared Jerusalem as Israel's capital? No. No. God declared Jerusalem Israel's capital. Donald Trump simply recognized a historical fact. That's all. <laughs> the final... The final week, the final seven-year period is what I want to talk about here because he goes on, Daniel goes on to talk about it, but it, it's, it's referred to a lot in, in the book of Revelation, which we've already touched on. During that time, it tells us in Revelation chapter 7, 144,000 witnesses will rise up from the people of Israel, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes will become saved, will accept Jesus as their Messiah, and will begin prophesying, will begin sharing, will become witnesses for him. And the harvest that comes in from that is immeasurable, it tells us in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 7. An immeasurable harvest that not only Jews, but Gentiles alike. Now look back at verse 12 in Romans 11. If their transgression is the richness of the world and their failure is the richness for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Immeasurable at that time. But there will be a, an event that takes place that Zechariah prophesied of. And that's what I'm getting to here. There's going to be a moment, again, after we are raptured out of here, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, sometime during this tribulation period, it tells us in Zechariah chapter 12, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look upon me 
whom they have pierced. Who is that talking about? (laughs) Clearly, obviously, Jesus. The Jews who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah to this point will see him. And they will look upon him, whom they have pierced, still bearing the marks of his, of his crucifixion. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like a bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will repent and receive Jesus as their Messiah as a whole, as a people. Fulfilling again what God says is going to take place. His prophecy, again, separates I get the word of God from everything else. And, and I encourage you, we actually have a small group that meets here on Thursdays at seven o'clock over in video venue B. It's the world news briefing. And that's, it looks at current events that are happening in the world today that are fulfilling prophecy, that are pointing, that were that culminating. Guys, we live in exciting times. And I encourage you to check that out. But notice verse 29, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. That is a hugely good news verse (laughs) because as Christians he's called us as Christians he's given us grace and the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable again that's why chapters 9 10 and 11 are so important because if God revoked what he gave to the Jewish people the calling that he placed on them what again would give us any comfort that he would, wouldn't do the same with the gifts and the callings that he's extended to us as Gentile Christians. <laughs> Calling, God's divine election. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Almighty, all-powerful God, he's the one. Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to be the one who perfects it. He's going to be the one. He started the work in us, and he will perfect it. Again, we can get, get all caught up in, in this whole sovereignty versus free will and all of these types of things, or we can just embrace the glory of it all. Look at verse 30 through 32, and notice there's a a theme that's repeated. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. (laughs) Disobedience and mercy. Because what we deserve from our disobedience is punishment. What we deserve from our disobedience is the wrath of God. But what do we get instead? The mercy of God. The fact that he would extend his mercy to us, not giving us what we deserve, but instead giving us his grace, his blessing, his love. Interesting that word that's used there in verse 32. God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Shut up, that word means to enclose. It's used, actually actually translated enclosed in Luke 5 verse 6 when it's speaking of the net that is enclosed around the catch of fish. And it's interesting when you think of that display why would God enclose us in our disobedience except it tells us so that he can show us mercy and I don't know about you 
We can ask ourselves a whole lot of questions. Why this? Why that? And we can get off on all of these tangents like a lot of people try to do when they try to avoid the Holy Spirit convicting them in their heart. Because I'll tell you what this causes me to do is to wonder why a holy, righteous, and perfect God would go to such great effort to extend mercy to a disobedient sinner like me. Makes about as much sense as grafting in a dry, crusty, old olive branch into a perfectly good olive tree. And all I can do is come to the point where, where Paul does, because when you're confronted by, by God, Almighty God, and His grace, He could break out into here and start saying, okay, and start breaking it all down and the the sovereignty of God, free will and man going into that old argument. But look what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For he has known them. Who has known the mind of God or become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He just breaks out in praise. (laughs) What do you do when you're confronted with a God that (laughs) is beyond our understanding in his goodness, in his love? (laughs) Can't possibly understand and get that because it's so unlike me. (laughs) Just praise him. Give him all the glory. How the depth of his wisdom and knowledge. The judgments in his way is unsearchable. Can't possibly reach the end of it. Can't possibly reach the bottom of it. Guys, the, the word of God isn't given to us to confuse us. It's given to us to encourage us. If you haven't come to this point and, and embraced this truth, please do so now. It's going to make your life a whole lot better, a whole lot easier, a whole lot more joy-filled a whole lot more full of peace. You will enjoy every moment of your life much better when you come to this this fact. God is way bigger and smarter than you are. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Can I just be, I'm straight up honest with you. If God was getting counsel from you, I'm not good with that. I'm not. I'm not down with that whole idea. I, I, I would protest that. You can pray for me all you want, but... Keep the suggestions out. (laughs) It brings me great comfort to know that God is way bigger and way smarter than me. From him, through him, and to him are all things. Guys, this whole idea of salvation is from him. We wouldn't have thought of it. We wouldn't have come up with it. As a matter of fact, we wanted nothing to do with it even, even, when it was, even when it was rolled out in all of its glory. The Bible says that he displayed his love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in his mercy, sent his only son to die for us. It's, it's from him and it's through him. Even if we were trying to come up with an idea, it wouldn't have worked. There is no way through him and through him alone. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And it's not just the shedding of any blood. It has to be perfect. It has to be spotless. It has to be sinless. No matter how much I might love you guys, me, I can't do anything for you. 
It took the perfect spotless lamb of God. That is why when we celebrate Christmas, guys, that's why it's so important. He came. He became one of us. He put on flesh, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us. Since we have flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He took on human flesh himself so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Through him. And that's why it's to him that all the glory goes. That we sing his praises. It's all about it. It's all about him. Guys, as, much as, as, much, as hard as it is for us to come, come to grips with this, it's not about you. <laughs> and it's not about me. It's about him. The supreme benefit of God's redemptive plan is eternal life for you and me. But the supreme purpose is to glorify God. Our children's ministry read this verse, and I want to finish with this and then let's sing to the Lord again. But again, the glory of it all, bringing glory, glory to God in the highest. Luke chapter 2, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in, in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared in the, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we do lift your name high. We join with the angels and say glory to God in the highest. Glory to you, Lord, and only you. Because you have brought peace to us. The peace that passes understanding. The peace that only comes from you. Lord, we know that we have that peace and we know that you are pleased with us, not because of anything that we have done, but Lord Jesus, because of what you did for us. The fact that we stand holy, blameless, and righteous because we are clothed in your righteousness. How can we do anything Lord, but spend the rest of our life praising you, giving you glory, sharing your love. If you're here today and you have never taken that step to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I beg you this morning, follow Jesus. Give your life to him. He gave it, gave his own life for you. The perfect sacrifice the only thing that can take away your sin and to make you right with God. But you have to receive it. In faith, you need to make him Lord of your life. Just go before him in your heart and pray along these lines saying, God, I, I know that I'm a sinner. And I confess my sin to you. I agree with you that I have I have sinned against you with what I've said, with what I've done, with what I've thought, that my life's not pleasing to you. But right now, I ask you to come into my life. I make you Lord. Forgive my sin. Give me that gift of eternal life. You're here today and you've prayed that prayer before. You, 
you are one of his, but you've wandered away from him, I invite you to come back to him today. His arms are open for you. A matter of, of repenting, again, turning from your sin and turning back to him. And God, we praise you today because you are a faithful God. It is because of your word. It is because of who you are that we can hold on to the promises that we have, that you'll never leave us, never forsake us, that the life that you've given us is eternal. We thank you and we praise you this morning for your faithfulness. Lord, use us. Fill us to overflowing with your spirit. Use us in this season, right now that we're in, right in this place, in this time, to bring the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for your people, the Jews, Lord, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior and King. And we know that because of your faithfulness, that in fact will come true. We praise you again this morning.